Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andrew Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. We are on the road in Seattle at ACMG's annual clinical genetics meeting. We're really excited to have the rare opportunity to speak directly with members of the medical genetics community. The timing of this meeting is special as it falls during the first ever Medical Genetics Week, which is April 2nd through 6th. For more information, visit acmg.net. So we're on location at ACMG. Very excited to sit with you, Dr. Diaz, and and learn a little bit about what you do at Mount Sinai. So tell me about yourself and how you got here. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Um, So I'm a pediatrician and a medical geneticist. I'm uh, the chief of the Division of Medical Genetics at Mount Sinai. So this is um, a group of physicians that take care of patients um, across the spectrum of uh, different types of genetic disorders, um, intellectual disability, um, short stature, hearing loss, uh, inborn errors of metabolism. Um, we have a very large group in inborn errors, and uh, that's basically what I do. Uh, clinically, I, I manage patients with um, disorders of uh, metabolism, be they um, disorders of urea cycle metabolism, uh, fatty acid oxidation, um, glycogen storage, and so on. And have you always worked with children? Yes. Um, So my background is uh, I did an MD-PhD and I was really interested in genetic regulation. I thought I'd be an oncologist and then um, thought better of it. Uh, Went into genetics and into pediatrics as a way to understand genetics. The developmental aspects of pediatrics seemed to make uh, a lot of sense for me to follow that particular path. Um, kind of fell in love with pediatrics while I was doing it. And, you know, the children were amazingly resilient. Yeah, they really are. They're the best patients, um, the toughest patients sometimes, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, really inspiring to work with these patients. And I fell in love with the acuity in the intensive care units. Um, I I really felt that when you... um, you know, could rescue a child in, in a crisis in, in those settings that you were able to give them back a, a really, you know, long, healthy life. And um, so it was very impactful. Um, so uh, that's the reason I gravitated towards the field that I practice in now with the inborn of metabolism is an aspect of genetics where there are emergencies, there are crises, and we have to respond quickly. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people don't think of genetics as a high acuity field, but, you know, certainly there are pieces of it that are, and um, that's what I gravitated towards. So I read somewhere that you have been thinking about uh, working in medicine since you were very young. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> since I was about seven or so. Um, those How and Why books, you know, they, get, they really get you. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I can't imagine that that at seven you really would think about uh, genetics. Uh, when did really when did genetics um, and and your work in genetics really when you said you know I think this is going somewhere. Right. So um, 
I took biochemistry uh, in undergrad, and everybody hated it. You know, it was a four-day lecture course. It was a Saturday morning lecture, and I thought this is just going to be miserable. But I fell in love with you know the pathways and the cycles. I thought biochemistry is really much more interesting than I, than I had imagined. And I took a graduate-level course, um, biochemistry of cancer, thinking it would be you know, more of the same. And it wasn't. It was really about oncogenes and how um, you know viruses can drive. Um, oncogenesis and this whole idea of so can you can I pause mm-hmm. oncogenes like what does that mean right so these are um, genes that are involved in driving cellular um, division proliferation right and so if you have a gene that's making a cell divide right that's kind of um, a, a precursor to cancer cells are dividing uncon- in an uncontrolled fashion okay right so this is an idea so that, oncology exactly. cancer genes cancer genes exactly. got it so this idea that genes were controlling cancer, that cancer was a genetic disease, that got into my head, and that was really interesting to me. And um, So I did an MD-PhD, and my, my uh, PhD work involved looking at questions of gene regulation, looking at proteins that turned on expression of genes. Um, so, you know, this is something that um, I thought clinically, you know, how do I use this, um, this interest of mine? And my first thought was I was going to go into uh, oncology, but... Uh, you know, then the idea of genetics kind of popped up, and one of my oncology buddies told me, you know, if you really want to spend a lot of time in a lab, maybe don't do oncology, uh, maybe do something a little less clinically demanding. So it was kind of a practical decision. Uh, and so along the way, I thought, well, if I'm going to do genetics, I'll do pediatrics because it just seems, you know, kind of a more direct route to understanding genetics. Um, so it was very kind of circuitous. Um, so are you in the lab, or are you with patients, or both? So I started out in the lab. I was um, doing probably um, 75, 80% of my time in the lab. I had a research lab. We uh, were doing a lot of disease gene discovery. This is kind of at the um, turn of the century when the Human Genome Project was just starting to spit out sequence. It was a super exciting time. We were actually able to identify a number of disease genes and develop animal models, you know, kind of figure out how these disease genes were causing these uh, manifestations in, in people. Um, really thrilling, but also came, uh, you know, at the time where the funding for NIH kind of dried up, and yeah. it became very challenging to maintain, um, you know, the um, the laboratory and to kind of pick up the clinical engagement that was uh, important because you know, I was working in the Inborn Heirs Clinic on a part-time basis, but they, the uh, principal folks who had developed that clinic for us were retiring, and so my colleague um, Melissa Washington and I basically picked up the load. Um, so, it, you know, the clinical demands became much more significant. And so I, I really started to shift my focus um, into more clinical trial work. And okay. that's what I do a lot of now is, um, you know, trying to bring therapies to patients. I'd like to tie and understand how um, you would work with a family or you would advise a family if they have a uh, discovered mutation or there's there's something going on genetically um, how what's what's your best advice to them to number one understand what's happening and then move into that clinical trial the willingness to go into the clinical trial I mean there's a big leap there but what would the steps be that you would recommend so there, there are multiple steps here I mean um, we have patients who come to us after many years of trying to um, get at a diagnosis right at the end of the diagnostic odyssey and when we give them back a finding you know now let's say we've got the ability to look at every gene in, in the exome and we do a whole exome analysis and we find a mutation and we say okay here's here's the change that explains the and that's an exome sequencing that's, right. that's what we call exome sequencing right. now okay so um, you know that is usually um, 
welcomed by the family. They've been looking for an answer, and now you've given them an answer. And, right. and that's enormously gratifying because um, now, you know, you have a reason. You know, why did this happen to me? Um, what does this mean for the future? You know, are we at risk as a family for this to happen again? There's a lot of immediate information you can give back. So families like that, I feel, are, are very motivated to get engaged in clinical research. You know, having found an answer is a start, but everybody really wants to make the life of their child better. Yes, right. The treatment. Mm-hmm. So if there is a disease where, you know, you are, are fortunate and you happen to have a treatment available, great. You know, you just plug right into a clinically available treatment. That's a really, really small fraction, right, of cases that get diagnosed. Um, so more often, you're going to be in an environment where you're going to look for other families that have this condition to share. Because, you know, I always tell families, you know, I'm the physician, I'm the expert in this, but it doesn't really mean very much because you're living with the condition. You know more than I will ever know, you know, what what this means. And um, I always encourage people to get in touch with other families because, you know, there's no need for you to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, this, it really does seem to be, uh, and, I'm, and I'm not just trying to flatter, but among top geneticists and clinicians, uh, you all are truly the... Uh, really rare in your willingness to say, okay, I don't have all the answers. Let me help connect you to, or you should reach out to the other experts. Right. And and I think, um, you know, the information revolution with the internet has made this really possible. It's accelerated our science, certainly. You know, we've, um, I always think about the effort that it took to find the cystic fibrosis gene, right? You know, all of those laboratories, you know, churning through um, all these patient samples to kind of winnow away. And now, you send an exome and you have a change that you think maybe explains your clinical your clinical uh, picture, but you're not sure. So you put it out there, you know, on, onto um, like a rare disease connection site and ask other people, have you seen something like this? And you get back an answer overnight. Oh, yeah, I've seen this. I have three other patients like this. There's a, a project that we're engaging in. Do you want to participate? So technology has advanced not only in our ability to, to look at the genes, but also share, data share, right? Exactly. So do you get involved in newborn screening or do you work after newborn screening? So we, we're the largest newborn screening referral center in New York State. We see about half of the newborn screen referrals in, in New York State. So okay. we do a lot of newborn screening. Would you like to see the screenings expand? I mean, obviously... Um, it's state by state, right? How much do you screen for there? Right. In New so, York? New York State is has always been very progressive um, in its newborn screening approach. Um, the the laboratory is always trying to innovate, and I think that that's um, commendable. Um, you know, we have a very um, broad panel, and we're continuously adding on new diseases. And sometimes this comes with a little bit of controversy. So, I don't know if, uh, if you've heard about um, the Crab A disease. Uh, the addition of crab A disease um, to the New York State panel was something that many geneticists thought was not a good idea because of the biochemical characteristics of um, the, the test. You know, there were a lot of, um, there was potential for false positives, and it turns out we really didn't understand the disease. You know, when we started screening for it, you know, we really le- learned how little we knew about the condition. Um, it, it raised a lot of issues, and, uh, you know, having had 10 years of experience, it's not a great um, experience, you know, in hindsight. Um, but I think if you don't try, you never learn, <laughs> you know. So I am definitely an advocate for expanding. Um, I think we have to be careful in how we do it. And the real driver of expansion in, in that instance was family advocacy, right? It wasn't the scientists or the physicians who were saying we should do this. It was the family. It was family advocacy. Yeah. yeah. So it's very powerful. Family advocacy is an extremely powerful tool. Um, it, I think it needs to be applied judiciously. 
at a conference like this, which is is so big and so much information, I would hope that, um, I mean, there are some patient advocates here and some booths, and, and I hope in the future we have more opportunities for the geneticists and the patient advocates to get together because this is where really truly where we've seen additional advancement, don't you think, yes. in understanding of disease? Absolutely. Great. Know, we, we characterize things, you know, through our lens of, you know, kind of the most affected individuals who come to clinical attention. We think we know it all, but we don't. And every time you apply a population screen, you find out how little you know. So that's, the, for me, the perspective of being a newborn screener and kind of seeing how that um, you know, when you apply a broad lens across a population, you'll learn a lot more, always. Well, Mount Sinai is incredibly lucky to have you there. I um, really appreciate you sitting down, taking some time with us. Uh, and I, I, it, genetics is so important to rare disease, obviously. Um, and just really understanding um, where we can go with this and, and how we can all kind of work together and continue to have these conversations. Um, I think will will help move us forward. So we hope to talk to you again in the future. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot. So we're here on location at ACMG, um, recording, speaking with experts in, in genetics and in this case, someone very famous in rare disease. Dr. Phelan, Thank you for coming. We're really excited to have you. Can you tell me a little bit about your role at ACMG? Yes, I've been a member of ACMG since its beginning. I'm a founding fellow. I'm currently on the board of directors of ACMG, and I serve on a couple of the committees. So I'm happy to be here, and I have a big investment in making sure that this meeting is a success. Well, it's a large one, so I think I think it is definitely a success. <laughs> yes, it is. So thank you so much. We're really excited to be here at ACMG and... Um, Appreciate your time sitting down with us. Can you give us just a little bit of your background that not only got you here, but really got into you into the field of genetics? My interest in genetics was actually um, peaked when I was an undergraduate at Spring Hill College in Alabama. So I took one genetics course there, and after I graduated, I knew I wanted to pursue higher education. And I thought genetics was the most interesting course I had taken because it seemed so mathematical and logical, yeah. which, of course, it isn't. But <laughs> <laughs> Did you imagine at all where we would be in Ooh, genetics no, back then? Not at all. So um, I applied to graduate school and I went a couple years at uh, a couple semesters at Florida State but they didn't have human genetics and I knew that was where I wanted to go so I went to the Medical College of Virginia to their human genetics program and I got a great education there with Dr. Walter Nance and when I finished and I was looking for some place I actually in my graduate work studied um, quantitative genetics did twin studies and that's not a very marketable skill there's a very limited place you can go so I thought well I need to make a living so I'll switch to cytogenetics and so I was looking for programs and uh, wrote to the Greenwood Genetics Center and they accepted me as a postdoctoral fellow so I did a two-year fellowship there and then they invited me to stay on and be director of their laboratory so cytogenetics, can you give me a basic, what's, what does that mean? It's a study of chromosomes. And in your day-to-day, -day, what do you what do, you do? Do you work with patients? Do you work in the lab? What I'm, is your I'm a laboratory geneticist. Okay. So um, in Greenwood, I was in a unique environment uh, that helped me get started on the uh, 22Q13 deletion 
pathway. Which is the Phelan-McDermott syndrome. Eventually was named Phelan-McDermott syndrome because we weren't limited to like, you you don't talk to the patients because you're in the laboratory. So I had the freedom to once we studied this case and I developed an interest in the interest in it, the parents could call me and talk to me. So I became sort of the resident, not I want to say expert, in that deletion syndrome. Well, so your name is famous in, in rare disease, uh, and you just mentioned this case. Talk to me about how this discovery was okay. made. So this was in uh, May of 1988. We got a blood sample on a newborn baby. He had poor muscle tone, hypotonia. He had epicanthal folds, was just a small extra fold in the inner corner of the eye, like individuals with Down syndrome have that. Right. And he had ptosis or droopy eyelids, so very subtle features. And the geneticist from Greenwood who saw him in the hospital decided to do chromosome analysis in my lab. So we looked at the chromosomes and found this deletion, missing piece at the bottom of chromosome 22. To me, that sounds fantastic, but it's... This mutation was a new mutation discovered, deletion discovered, correct? There was a, um, when I looked in the literature, I didn't find anything else, but there had been a previous case that had been described as I wouldn't recognize it as the same thing I was looking at. Okay. So that had something, it became important later the way we published this case. So it would be recognized as what, a, a deletion of 22Q13. Okay. So people would contact us because they saw our paper. Okay. So we went to the literature. We didn't see any other cases. We reported this at a um, conference in the fall, a genetics conference. And then I contacted Heather McDermott at the University of Alberta in Canada because I knew she studied chromosome 22. She did molecular studies, DNA analysis, and I wanted her to characterize the size of the deletion or what the deletion was. And we did biochemical genetic studies also to look at enzymes and things on that area of 22. So eventually in 1992, we published a case report and we named it Cytogenetic Molecular and Biochemical Characterization of a Deletion of 22Q13. Okay. So so that partnership, it, it sounds like you took two pieces of a puzzle, really important pieces, and you tried to share information to discuss it, to have a better understanding. Is, is that right? Yes. We wanted to know. We saw the deletion. We didn't know what it meant, but we wanted to learn about it. And I didn't know at the time that Heather actually was studying some other cases of this deletion. Okay. And so eventually I, we collaborated again and published nine individuals with deletion of 22Q13. So as you're working with Heather, um, how are you working then for, with your case? I mean, are you interacting with the family at all? Or are you um, talking only with the physician? Or is there really just we're working on it on the back end. Yeah, when they came, the family came to genetics clinic, I'd go over and talk to them. But the physicians at Green would do the clinical evaluation things. I'm not an MD, so I'm not going to do a physical exam. Right. But I would talk to them. And also, after the article was published, I was the corresponding author. So another family in Ohio might have gotten the diagnosis, and they do a literature search, and they see this article, and they call me. Right. They want to know about this family. So I call the family in Greenwood and say, well, can I give them your phone number? Will you talk to them? And I started putting families together. And I also started learning, well, what does your child do? do Choose their clothes all the time? Doesn't have any toenails? Doesn't do this? So I was learning the symptoms so I could tell the family, yeah, that sounds like these other two children I've heard about. And 
the recurring theme among the families. Right, the trends. Was, well, they wanted to meet other families in person, not just on the phone. We didn't have email then and right. internet, so everything right. was either letters or on, Skype on the phone. And, no. yeah. and uh, they wanted a name, not a number. They didn't want to be deletion 22Q13. So um, that was sort of what they all wanted. And some families would take a vacation to go meet another family. And so you are still heavily involved with yes. with um, families. And so it started out with you just by chance taking these phone calls and then really, uh, I mean, it sounds, uh, it, you make it sound very easy, but to have that kind of passion to say, you know what, I'm actually really going to work with these families and help these families and uh, become a resource to each other is incredible. So how long before you kind of evolved into um, an actual foundation? Well, in uh, 1998, I had the opportunity to submit a grant to get money. And um, there's a small foundation that wanted to give money to the Greenwood Genetic Center. And so because their child had a chromosome abnormality, the director of the center, Roger Stevenson, said the money should go to the cytogenetics lab, my lab. So I wrote a grant and I said, I don't need any equipment or people. I want to have a support group meeting for these families. So I wrote a grant to have a support group meeting. I knew of nine families at this point in January of uh, 1998. By the time we had the meeting in August of 1998, there were 23 families I knew in the world 21 of those 23 families traveled to Greenville, South Carolina, and we had our first support group meeting. I just got goosebumps because I've been to one of those, a few of those support group meetings, and I know that it's life-changing, really, for these families. It, I mean, it's like before you meet someone uh, with your same mutation mm-hmm. and after, and it's a whole nother world. And it was a wide range. We had one individual who's 28 years old. We had a 15-year-old, and everybody else was under 10. Wow. So how many families are there today that you know of? There are over 2,000 families that are in our registry, okay. but we know there's at least twice that many that are diagnosed and are not in our registry. And we know there are many who are not diagnosed. So there are probably people with autism, with cerebral palsy, with other disorders and older individuals that have never had the correct testing that just may never get the diagnosis. So you realized right away the importance of families hearing about other families experiencing and missing toenails, I think you you mentioned. Just plastic toenails. I had very thin, flaky toenails. I never had to cut them when they were babies. Okay. Just peeled them off. So how does that information, in today's world and what we understand about genetics, how does having that information help uh, what's happening in the labs when we're looking at genetics? Well, at at the first meeting, we were looking at the people who were diagnosed by chromosome abnormalities. So these had the biggest deletions. So they were the more severely affected end of the spectrum. Okay. Now we do the diagnosis most often by a microarray analysis where you're looking at the DNA. So whereas those deletions were over nine megabases, or not over nine, up to nine, say five to nine megabases, millions of bases of DNA, with a microarray, you can pick up a deletion less than 10 kilobases, less than 10,000 bases. 
So the range of um, how severely affected somebody is much mild. It's a big spectrum in the 2,000 families. So huge range. So somebody could walk into the room and I'll say, I wonder which one of those children has Phelan McDermott syndrome. So maybe it's the one with the absent speech or something that I can't visibly notice. Long eyelashes, a subtle feature like that because I can't see that this child has autistic-like behavior or seizures or GI problems. So it's a neurobehavioral diagnosis now. It's not the phenotype, not the physical features that we diagnose. So uh, what would diagnosis look like today? Would it be uh, a, a clinical diagnosis with a genetic confirmation or is it a genetic diagnosis? How, I mean, what, what, do you, what happens if someone thinks that there's there might be something wrong? How do they end up with this kind of diagnosis? So the first tier of testing in somebody with uh, autism spectrum disorders, you know, or intellectual disability should be a microarray. Okay. So that would detect this deletion or deletion or duplication of any chromosome, really. Now, if you had a reason to suspect Phelan McDermott syndrome or if your microarray didn't pick up anything and you still think it's a genetic diagnosis, you could do DNA sequencing. Okay. And if you did sequencing, you might find a mutation of Shank 3, which is a very important gene on chromosome 22 that is deleted or mutated in patients with Phelan McDermott syndrome. And that's how you know very specifically yes. Phelan McDermott. So if a family goes in and says, I need genetic testing because I think something's wrong with my kid, they may not necessarily get microarray or that would be the first place that, that a geneticist would start. That's where a geneticist, after looking at the child and saying, yes, this child does need genetic testing, if it's not a biochemical disorder or something they could rule out, put in a different bucket, they should do a microarray. Okay, great. Just to make, you know, it's, I think that we're advancing so quickly with mm-hmm. genetic testing um, that it's, it's very common for people to think like, well, we tested my genetics and I don't know what was done, but they didn't find anything. But then now we, I mean, now we know that that there's this, there's so many different options. And so if you have a 30 or 40 year old who got chromosomes and was normal many years ago, or even a 20 year old, Maybe you need a microarray now. Exactly. It, it amazes me at our meeting when somebody comes and says, my 32-year-old daughter was just diagnosed. What made you have diagnosis now? You know, that After all finally these years. Yeah. 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 And we see that with other rare diseases, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, for example, I was not diagnosed until I was 37. Uh, nobody even thought to look at my genetics. And that's, I mean, it's a clinical diagnosis with genetic confirmation. You can rule in but not rule out. But, I mean, it is fascinating when there's such a visual phenotype. But when you see the individuals at our support group meeting, the last meeting, I think we had 180 families there, you you get a sense that there is a similarity between individuals. They look alike. So you get an overall sense that there is something similar about the children. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful to be at the support group meetings because the whole family comes and the siblings come. So we watch the sibling for now 20 years grow up with each other and they see each other every two years and they're like best friends. Right. It it really is becomes an incredible extended family that technology and in social media has advanced Mm -hmm. so much and that has also helped. So um, you, you've made a lot of progress in understanding uh, there's still no treatment. Is that correct? Or is or there, there's no cure? 
no cure. I don't. I. I don't know if it would be. I would say that you're not going to cure this. You're not going to replace the chromosome. So there are clinical trials that are um, being held at uh, Seaver Autism Center in New York. They're testing. They've done several tests on intranasal insulin, insulin-like growth factor. They have one now on oxytocin. They have one on uh, adults for. Um, AMO uh, for epilepsy. So there are different things that if, if this medication worked on 30% of the kids and it imp- or individuals and improved their eye contact and their attention span, that would be a success. We're not going to find one medication that's going to alleviate every problem in every child. So we're just trying to work on the symptoms and help some of the kids with this one and then maybe we'll find another medication that will help the other ones. So because we're we're recording without cameras, people can't see that I'm smiling. But <laughs> I have a big smile on my face because really I think the, an example of your work and working with the families is exactly what has led you to understand that mm-hmm. and the importance of that, right? Mm-hmm. Because without being so close to families, you don't necessarily understand what's important to each family without... A, a cure, for example, without this, you know, shining light of a cure, like what day to day is going to improve your life? And it may be different for different families. If you don't have seizures, you're not worried about seizures. Right. But if you have something else, you know, you're worried about a different problem. So one thing that is really uh, sticking out to me, uh, just as a patient advocate, is your willingness to, as I mentioned, reach out to another geneticist and 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 have you know, bring in one more piece of the puzzle and then next step, work with the families. Um, And I I think that is rare and rare um, and everywhere. (laughs) But how, how can we translate that? What is your advice to other geneticists who are working with on an undiagnosed case or in a situation maybe there is a diagnosis but very little is known? Well, I think if they follow the guidelines for diagnosing a patient, then they would do the microarray and they should get a result. If they don't do the microarray and they do the sequencing, then they'll pick up this diagnosis or another diagnosis. But if they, I get calls all the time, you know, can you interpret this? Is this pathogenic? Is it not pathogenic? Something they found. Okay. If it's a clinical question, the parents are contacting me or another MD. What do you think? Have you seen a patient with this or what would you do in this case? I'll say, well, this is what I know from the families, but I'm not an MD, so let me refer you to somebody else. So I don't try to do things that I feel are beyond my training or my capability. So I might say, this is what I know from that, but I'm going to ask somebody that I consider more of an expert than myself. So I try to answer questions, but I think if you are on a diagnostic odyssey and you do the microarray, and you do the next-gen sequencing, and, and you, from that you don't get a diagnosis, some cases new to biochemical genetics tests. So there's a whole arsenal of genetic testing that can be performed, mm-hmm. and most geneticists are going to know that. And if you're a um, family practice doctor or a pediatrician or something like that, and you need a geneticist to evaluate your patient, then you should go that route. So, and... I mean, I suppose really what I'm hearing from you is the persistence um, and it's really working and believing that there's something that 
that is worth investigating, thinking out of the box a little bit, and and just like it, it would be easy just to say, well, I don't see anything, so we're going to move on to the next case. But oh yeah, it's not something you did. We had a family from Australia who came with their. They didn't bring her daughter, thirty six years old, just diagnosed. And uh, they said that the doctor, every few years, would pull out the DNA and run another test. And they finally called her and said, we know what it is. And they had done the microarray and found the... And she said, I didn't even know that he was running the test every couple of years. So as technology was advancing, he just said, "Let's we're going to keep looking. Yeah, so that's the kind of persistence you need to just keep after it. And what I try to offer the families is support and hope. So I tell them, you know, I had a family in Montreal, and they told me that I gave them the best advice in the world. I told them to fire their therapist. I said, I don't remember that. <laughs> and they said, well, you didn't, you didn't exactly say it like that. <laughs> I said, well, what did I say that sounded like fire your therapist? therapist? And they said, well, we told you our therapist said there was no hope for our child, and you said it would be better to work with somebody with hope, I, oh yes, I would say that. So yes, yes that did mean fire your therapist. <laughs> and in that case, I gave you great advice. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, your story, the Phelan McDermott story, is one that we will continue to watch. But it really is uh, one of of hope in rare disease. So I thank you. It's an honor to sit and talk with you. Um, I hope you enjoy your week at ACMG. This is, I mean, a perfect example of what can happen when people work together and technology advances. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Great. Thanks so much. This episode was recorded live at the 2019 American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics Annual Clinical Genetics Meeting in Seattle, Washington. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in Common. Click, listen, feel, feel.